Welcome, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. On the day that America's 46th president, Joe Biden, is being sworn into office, we want to honor him by sharing his home state of Delaware. We are fortunate to explore the beautiful city of Wilmington, Delaware, and the Brandywine Valley's rich American history and European flair. During our travels, we toured the studio of American artist Jamie Wyeth, grandson of N.C. Wyeth and son of Andrew Wyeth. We also strolled the grounds of Winterthur Mansion in Nemours Estate and Longwood Gardens. And for a moment, we felt like we were in Europe. Enjoy this unique exploration of President Joe Biden's backyard in Wilmington, Delaware. But first, known for its collection of American art, the internationally acclaimed Brandywine River Museum of Art in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, just a short drive from downtown Wilmington, houses three generations of Wyeth artists, most notably illustrator N.C. Wyeth, his son, the internationally acclaimed painter Andrew Wyeth, and Andrew's son Jamie Wyeth, a famous painter as well. Tour guide Rena Winter takes us inside the Andrew Wyeth studio to learn about this legendary American artist. Well, welcome to the Andrew Wyeth painting studio. Uh, this is uh, the location that was um, significant to Andrew Wyeth for 70 years, starting in 1940 when uh, he and Betsy were first married. Uh, they moved in here as a newlywed couple. They were very young. He was 21 and she was 18. And they raised their two sons, Nikki and Jamie, here in this building until they were young teenagers. When Andrew Wyeth painted, he did not want to be disturbed. In 1961, Betsy found um, another series of buildings further up the Brandywine. Uh, it's called the Granary at Britton Mill, and she uh, had them restored and they moved up there. Uh, and he did have space to paint there at his new home, but he much preferred painting here, which was his habit. So he would uh, drive down every morning from his home and he'd park his truck up here behind the building. He didn't want people to know that he was uh, painting here. And he let the vegetation grow wild around the building. Mm. Uh, you can see the sign on the door. It says, I am working, so please do not disturb. I do not sign autographs. And then beware of the dog. <laughs> <laughs> he did have dogs. Andrew, like many artists, preferred to paint by the northern light in the studio, a converted schoolhouse bought by his dad, N.C. This had been uh, a schoolhouse with the Chads Ford School District, built in 1875, and they used it for 50 years as a schoolhouse building. And then uh, in 1925, they put it up for sale, and it was quickly purchased by N.C. Wyeth, who's the father of Andrew Wyeth. His uh, studio is located up. If you went through the meadow and through the woods, you would quickly come to the N.C. home and studio. So in 1925, he thought this would probably be an ideal location for one or more of his five talented children to have studio space and living quarters. So he purchased it and he uh, put in different partitions to split up the schoolhouse building. Uh, he added a big north-facing window because artists like the north light best. And, uh, and then in the 1930s, he added this central section as... Uh, living quarters. The newest part of the building is over here. This was added in the 1950s by Andrew and Betsy Wyeth as their new kitchen. So this became the front entrance in the 1950s. The schoolhouse, by now a studio and home for Andrew Wyeth and his family, had a kitchen that served as the social center for the family and their friends. Jamie Wyeth, the younger son of Andrew Wyeth, remembers this as being a cozy hub of family life and uh, where friends and family would meet. He said that his father, when he finished a work of art back in his studio, he'd bring it out and put it over the fireplace here so that it could be uh, displayed and friends and family sitting here could critique his latest work. Andrew didn't usually name his own paintings. His wife, Betsy, named them after he finished, so she named this one Monday morning. It's a, a 1955 egg tempera painting. 
and you can see the laundry basket here leaning up against the stucco. She named it that because Monday morning was traditionally laundry day in the Pennsylvania German tradition, and uh, Andrew Wyeth's mother was Pennsylvania German. Wyeth used family and friends, some who were influential artists in Andrew's painting style, as models for his paintings. He uh, didn't pay his models, so his models were generally friends and neighbors. And he had a close group here in Chadsford and another group up in Maine. First and foremost, uh, this man was uh, George Weymouth, uh, also known as Frolic Weymouth, and uh, he is uh, the founder of the Brandywine Conservancy in 1967 and the Brandywine River Museum in 1971. He was a close friend of Andrew Wyeth. He was also an artist. He did uh, egg tempera, as did Andrew Wyeth. Carl J. Kerner, uh, he had the advantage of watching Andrew Wyeth paint on his uh, grandfather's farm when he was a young boy, and he became an artist himself. This is Andrew at a later age with uh, one of his models from Maine, uh, Siri Erickson, a young Swedish girl. He painted her from the ages of 14 to 19. And uh, she was a neighbor of Christina Olson. This was uh, Andrew Wyeth's most recognized painting. It's called Christina's World. It was painted in Maine on the Olson farm. And uh, after the death of Christina Olson, then uh, he started painting Siri Erickson. And uh, Andrew Wyeth is actually uh, buried on the Olson farm. You can see here. This uh, photograph that uh, someone had taken of, you know, the buildings here on the farm, and oh. he's, he's buried in the cemetery there. This is uh, Andrew with his dog Rattler. Rattler appears in some of his uh, paintings like Night Sleeper. Andrew also had friendships with notable celebrities of his time, but his brother-in-law, who married his older sister, would be one of the most influential to his painting style. Henry Fonda. He uh, visited here in the late 60s and did a documentary on uh, Wyeth. And another movie star over here, this is uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And uh, he was having a pretend duel with Andrew Wyeth. <laughs> Andrew took up fencing later in his life. Over here, this is his brother-in-law, Peter Hurd. Peter Hurd married Henriette Wyeth, the oldest daughter of N.C. Wyeth. And uh, Andrew Wyeth was only 12 when his sister married Peter Hurd. He was one of the students of N.C. Wyeth. So he became very important to Andrew Wyeth throughout his life and career. He was a mentor and a teacher to him. And he's the one who taught him how to do the egg tempera painting process. That was his main medium. Wyeth also greatly admired actor Errol Flynn for his swashbuckling swordsmanship. And this was... Uh, Andrew's favorite actor, Earl Flynn. <laughs> yeah, when you, I actually thought when I saw that picture, uh -huh. Earl Flynn was who came to mind. Right. Um, and then I thought the, the age, the timeline had to be off because he, he was much older. I mean, he, uh -huh. he was his, he liked Earl Flynn as a child watching him in. Right. And, okay. Yeah. So they weren't the same age. No, I don't think so. <laughs> think so. Yeah, But he's the one who did all those swashbuckling movies mm -hmm. like Robinson Crusoe and Captain Blood, Three Musketeers. And I think that's how Andrew got into wanting to learn how to fence, you know, because of those movies. And when we get into the library, you'll see uh, that he collected all his movies and he has posters of Earl Flynn. So... And he would, um, he got a projector and he would show people that visited the studio uh, parts of these movies, the Earl Flynn movies. One of the more interesting aspects of Andrew Wyeth's personality was his unique way of keeping track of important phone numbers. And then above his telephone table, you can see all these uh, names and phone numbers. Andrew Wyeth would just scribble them on the wall. If he wanted to remember your name and number, he would just write it on the wall. And son Nicky said his mother Betsy didn't like it, and she would just have it repainted, and then he would just do it over again. So the curators put up plexiglass to preserve his last scribblings. 
You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We're inside the studio of American artist Andrew Wyeth on the grounds of the Brandywine River Museum of Art in Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania, with the museum's Reno Winter. Reno shares some of the various interests of Wyeth and how they influenced his art. Uh, Then there's an eclectic uh, mix of things that he liked. Uh, Over here you see his um, fencing masks up there on the shelf. And then you can see his little World War I soldiers on that shelf. These were his um, first models. As a child, he would sketch these little soldiers doing battle out on the local Chad's Ford landscape. Did he have a favorite war that he'd like to reenact? Well, basically it started with World War I, but then later he collected soldiers from all the different wars. But it was that movie, The Big Parade, that got him started on World War One. Andrew's dad, N.C. Wyeth, imparted many techniques that would help Andrew become a great painter through illustration and plaster casts that were a hallmark of his teaching style. N.C. used those to uh, teach his students uh, drawing. He ordered them from uh, the Caproni Company, an art mail order catalog, and when they would arrive they'd be bright white and N.C. would paint them with dark paint and then rub the dark paint off so he could see contours and shadows. So uh, that's how Andrew Wyeth started formal art training. At about the age of 15, he started in his father's studio learning drawing, and he would draw these plaster casts and also simple geometric shapes and simple still-life arrangements. Another artist and influential person in Wyeth's development was Howard Pyle, who gave Wyeth an important piece of advice that would shape his approach to his work. But Andrew Wyeth greatly admired Howard Pyle, and he always kept some of his illustrations here in the studio. Uh, There was one essential teaching that came down from Howard Pyle, and that is you have to know your subject very, very well and have an emotional attachment to your subject. And Andrew Wyeth certainly followed that throughout his career. He would paint the same people and places over and over again, uh, both here in Chad's Ford and up in Maine. Knowing your subject well and having an emotional attachment was never more apropos than in the paintings he did with Helga Testorf, a local woman who modeled for Andrew Wyeth and worked for him. She um, was a German nurse, and she lived uh, across the street from um, the Kerner farm. And she uh, was hired to take care of Carl Kerner Sr. when he was ill with cancer for about 10 years. So she would walk over every day to the farm, and uh, that's where Andrew Wyeth met her. And he painted her in secret for 14 years on the third floor of the Kerner farm. Uh, Didn't let anyone know that he was doing all these paintings of one person. And then he released them in about 1986, and they had a big uh, showing over at the museum. Caused quite a quite a sensation when that occurred. How so? Because her family didn't know? Or? Well, I guess for several reasons. Uh, a lot of them were nudes. Um, and um, yeah, well, he, he painted her in all different seasons of the year, both dressed and nude. And But it's, it's just that there were so many of one person, I think, was what caused the you know, the surprise there. But uh, they were uh, bought up by a Japanese investor, so they're mainly in Japan now. But I understand that some are maybe being sold back into the United States. Mm-hmm. But in later years, he, uh, she helped him here in the studio. She became his assistant and a friend. And you can see how he uh, painted her here with her hand on the cupboard. She's very tiny, only about five feet tall. Mm-hmm. And she still lives across from the farm, and she still comes to the museum. She's still alive. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's in her 70s, and she'll come to the museum. If you happen to see her over there, she's usually wearing all white with a little white ribbon in her hair. She's very approachable. As we stepped into the actual studio where Andrew Wyeth painted, the chaotic space gave an incredible insight into Wyeth's creative genius. He would do a lot of sketching sketches, pencil sketches, watercolor sketches for a major tempera, but he didn't really take care of them. He considered them to be like mental notes, and once he was finished with them, he would just put them on the floor, or he'd file them away in in drawers, or he'd tack them on the walls. But the dogs and the children would walk on them, and he'd, he'd splash paint and water on them. 
but you can see his uh, painting process here. Along the window are the, the uh, pigments that he used for egg tempera. And of course, he liked the, the earth tones the best. Uh, he would choose a color, and then he would uh, take an egg. He'd crack the egg over the jar, and he'd only use the yolk. The yolk was the binder. And the white part, he would either feed to the dogs or discard. And then he would use a little distilled water to mix those three ingredients to the right consistency. And then he described it as a layering process. It would be layer upon layer upon layer. And that's how he got the fine detail, by building up lots of layers. As we wrap up our tour of the studio, our guide, Reno Winter, reminds us of the major influences of Andrew Wyeth as an artist. Right there next to the window are the three major influences on his life, uh, his father, N.C. Wyeth. Uh, in the middle is Howard Pyle, the teacher of N.C. Wyeth. And the bottom is his brother-in-law, Peter Hurd, who taught him egg tempera. But uh, he was greatly affected by the death of his father, N.C. Wyeth was killed in a car train accident about two miles over here on Ring Road on October 19, 1945. He was only 61. So Andrew was only 28 when his father was killed, and he said that it uh, gave him a reason to paint, that you know, his father had been his only teacher, and he wanted to prove that all the effort N.C. had put into his art education would come to fruition, as it certainly did. For more information about the Wyeth artistic legacy, go to brindywinemuseum.org. Also visit the show page on worldfootprints.com for a direct link. The DuPont name is synonymous with Delaware, and at the Hagley Museum and Library, five generations of DuPonts built a fortune on black powder and left an indelible mark on this region and America, as Elaine Croft of the Hagley Museum shares. Hagley Museum tells the story of the DuPont family and the DuPont company. The DuPonts came from France in 1800, and by 1802 they decided that they would start a black powder manufactory. So here at Hagley we have 235 acres currently of beautiful parkland. We're set uh, along the Brandywine River or the Brandywine Creek as it's known locally. So it's a very very beautiful environment for us to have our museum but of course one thing we have to remember is back in the 1800s when there was a black powder company here it was anything but beautiful it was dirty it was dusty it was smelly and of course the nature of the product it was dangerous the black powder of its day was both gunpowder and blasting powder so we're talking pre-dynamite uh, pre-smokeless powder but it was most definitely a very very important product for the time the DuPont family were actually French immigrants they arrived in America in 1800 and actually had no intention of making black powder initially they intended to buy land but land here in America was more expensive than they anticipated so that dream didn't really start coming to fruition until they started making money from black powder the founder of the company, L.U.C. Irene Dupont, had actually been making black powder in France for a short period of time. He was just a teenager when he went to work for the French government in their gunpowder manufactory. And he was a very fortunate young man because he trained under the very esteemed Antoine Lavoisier, who was considered to be the modern chemist of his day and certainly made a very, very fine product indeed. So when the family arrived in America and realized that they couldn't purchase as much land as they wished so they be could become farmers, he realized that the standard of the black powder in America at the turn of the century was both poor quality and it was very, very expensive. So he realized he could make a superior product and he could sell it more competitively. So that's what they decided to do. The decision to start the business here in Delaware on the Brandywine 
was for many reasons. They needed an excellent source of water power because of course we're way before electricity. So they were gonna use water to power all the machinery. And the Brandywine Creek here was an excellent source of water. It actually drops away 124 feet over the last five miles as it heads down towards the ocean. So you have an excellent source of water power. And of course you have great transportation links just five miles downstream. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are talking to Elaine Croft of the Hagley Museum and Library, the place where the DuPonts lived and made their fortune in black powder. It really was really like a, a mini Silicon Valley of its day. There were many, many other mills in this area at this time, everything from cotton spinning mills to graining mills, woolen mills, etc. So it was a great location. Also naturally occurring in this area was a metamorphic rock known as Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. -S. So being metamorphic, it's very, very hard, very sturdy. So it was the excellent stone that he would need to build his infrastructure out of. Because if you're going to be manufacturing black powder and explosive, you don't want to build your yards out of wood, really, do you? It could all get horribly messy, horribly quickly. Um, whether he realized, of course, it was metamorphic at the time, we'll never know, but he just knew it was a good, sturdy stone. So all the buildings that you'll notice here at Hagley are built from this beautiful stone. Locally, actually, it's called blue rock because when it's initially quarried, it has kind of a bluish tinge to it. And even our baseball team today is known blue rocks after this particular stone. So when he uh, came to this site in 1802, the business, of course, was in its infancy. So uh, the, the business was very small at that stage, but it's grown and grown and grown over the years. They were actually here for 121 years in total, and their first shipment of black powder went out as early as 1804. By the 18-teens, uh, they'd already become the nation's largest manufacturer of black powder. Their product was so superior. And by the second half of the century, they became the world's largest manufacturer of black powder. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are talking to Elaine Croft of the Hagley Museum and Library, the place where the DuPonts lived and made their fortune in black powder. So the DuPonts themselves and the company made a lot of money in black powder. They were able to develop into other industries really quite early on. They had a, an interest in a cotton spinning mill. They ran their own woolen mill for a while. Uh, then they moved into farming. You know, that dream to be farmers did, really did come to fruition, particularly with one of the founder's sons. His name was Henry DuPont. He was very keen on breeding uh, beef cattle, very fine carriage horses. He even experimented with every sort of wheat you could grow at this latitude. His yields were absolutely phenomenal. So he was making money in that respect as well. And then as, as we move through the centuries, we get towards the end of the 1800s, they did find themselves in the world of manufacturing both dynamite and smokeless powder, which really is what changed them from being black powder manufacturers to become chemists because of course experimenting in the world of dynamite and smokeless powder meant they were using both nitroglycerine and nitrocellulose which of course they now were beginning to understand that if you manipulate these chemicals you can really diversify into many many other industries so by the time we move into the early 20th century um, and beyond they're starting to invent such um, products as nylon, uh, cellophane, uh, Kevlar later on, Teflon, and so many, many other products that we take so for granted in our world today. 
that really stemmed back to them becoming chemists. We'll have more with Elaine in just a moment. For more information on the DuPont story and Hagley Museum, visit hagley.org. This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers. continue our conversation with Elaine Croft of the Hagley Museum and Library to learn about the legacy of the DuPont family. As we stroll the grounds of the Hagley with Elaine, we hear how the DuPont family made their way from France to America and helped to lead the United States into the industrial age. Elucie Irene DuPont, the founder of the company, was trained by Antoine Lavoisier to make black powder. And in doing so, he had many techniques at his disposal that other manufacturers in America at the beginning of the 1800s didn't have. So that in itself um, gave him an advantage in starting the business. Now that said, like many Americans or many immigrants coming from other countries at that time, he he had sufficient money to even be able to have an American dream, but he didn't. He did rely very heavily on investors back in France to, to, to get this business started. Um, but having that ad advantage of making a superior product um, was very much part of the story of the evolution of the Industrial Revolution because he was applying techniques that hadn't been applied before. He, for example, was refining. There are three products to making, for making black powder. Charcoal, saltpeter, which is potassium nitrate or sodium nitrate, and sulfur. And he would put both the saltpeter and the sulfur through a refining process at the very beginning of the process. Because obviously if you ended up with, if you had a refined product to start with, it was, you were going to have less misfiring uh, at the end of, end of the process when you're trying to use the product. So that was certainly a business differentiator for them. And as we know, the story of the Industrial Revolution is so much about finding our own business differentiator, bringing something to the market that other people haven't been doing so far. The DuPonts themselves were great, not only great chemists, but they were great innovators as well. So during that 119 year period that they were here, they did bring a lot of innovation to the process. So one innovation, for example, was, and also bringing mechanization to a particular part of the process, was the black powder itself, after the ingredients had been mixed or incorporated as they would call it, it was somewhat damp because they would have added some water mm -hmm. and they needed to bond it very tightly because of course if the three ingredients are allowed to separate after they have been mixed, that's not gonna be very good black powder, is it? You're not gonna get a good chain reaction. You'd get a, a poor explosion. So to bond the three ingredients together very well, that was a manual process at the beginning of the century. Um, <clears throat> the powder would be put into big wooden trays. Um, the trays would be stacked and then using a pulley and a lever, it was some big strong gentleman's responsibility to pull down on a lever that would literally squeeze the black powder together. It was, you know, reasonably successful, but it was very much reliant on a human being having the strength 
to apply that leverage. One of the DuPont family members, a man by the name of Lamotte DuPont, who was one of the founder's grandsons, realized that he could make this um, process mechanized using a hydraulic press. A big, big piece of machinery that could put the black powder under pressure of 3,000 pounds per square inch. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're learning about Delaware's first family, the DuPonts, as we tour the Haley Museum with Elaine Croft. So that's a very, very different process to one man standing there relying on his, his muscle power. And as we know, that was so much part of the Industrial Revolution, wasn't it? Moving from manual processes using the muscle power of men or uh, horses or oxen to using large pieces of machinery operated by particularly water power. Other mechanization in this area, you know, at the early, in the early 1800s, people are relying on uh, wooden water wheels to generate the power, which are fine, provided you haven't got a drought or the uh, river isn't iced up or you don't have a flood or of course the general wear and tear on wood when it's sitting in water for long periods of time and begins to rot. So by the 1840s at this site, they're starting to add the new technology of metal turbines, which have already been invented by this time. Metal turbines sit um, horizontally low in the water, as opposed to vertically standing above the water or on the water. So that was an advantage when it came to ice or lack of water. And of course, being made of uh, metal rather than made of wood, there was an advantage there as, as well. Henry Ford had the Firestones and Thomas Edison. Who did the DuPonts have? We all like to have a famous person attached to any of our success stories, and we do have one. Thomas Jefferson, Elusée Irénée's father, Pierre Samuel Dupont, uh, grew up in France and he worked for the French government. And as we know, Thomas Jefferson was ambassador to France for some time and spent time in France um, and they became very good friends. They actually corresponded with one another for 28 years. And so he was most definitely an influence in those very early days when the family were making the decision to leave France. Of course, he's saying, come to America. Mm. So much opportunity, so many resources at your disposal. So he was certainly in part, um, part of the deciding factor of this is the direction in which we should come. And perhaps I should back up a little bit. Well, why did they come to America in the first place? The DuPont family were royalists. Therefore, during the French Revolution, they supported the king, Louis XVI. They were very fortunate that they survived that conflict. Although Pierre Samuel DuPont was imprisoned on two occasions, but fortunately, released. Elusée Irénée also imprisoned on one occasion, but fortunately released. But even in the aftermath of the revolution, because they were still royalists, it meant that their lives were potentially still in danger. So towards the end of the century, the end of the 1700s, they decided, you know, it really is time that we leave France. So having that great connection in Thomas Jefferson, um, certainly help them make the decision that yes, America was the, the, the right country for them to come to at that time. To learn more about the DuPont legacy and to plan your visit to the Hagley Museum and Library, go to hagley.org. We will also have a link to that website on this show page at worldfootprints.com. Longwood Gardens, Wintertour Mansion, and Nemours Estate, all built by the DuPonts, are just some of the attractions in the greater Wilmington area that give the region a European feel. 
Lynn Lewis of Visit Wilmington takes us on an exploration of some of these attractions, as well as the arts and cultural scene that contributes to the region's dynamism. Wilmington has so much to offer in such a small jurisdiction. Wilmington itself is located in the northern portion of Delaware, but the whole state is such that there's only 100 miles long and 35 miles wide. But inside that little bitty territory, there's a tremendous amount to enjoy. A lot of the attractions in Wilmington are credited to the DuPonts. The DuPonts came over from France after the French Revolution, barely escaping the guillotine. And they actually left France in 1800. They settled in Wilmington in 1802. And by 1803, they were manufacturing high-quality gunpowder. Today, visitors can visit Hagley, see the house, which is called Eleutherian Mills, that housed five generations of the DuPont family. But they can also visit the powder yards. You think of gunpowder yards and you think ugly? No. It's called the most beautiful mile on the Brandywine River. The river itself drops dramatically in a one mile period of time and then it's surrounded by rolling hills covered with beautiful trees. I mean it's spectacular in the spring and in the summer and in the fall. It's beautiful when it's snow covered and it's opened all year long. Plus, they have changing exhibitions. It's a real man's museum, too. Men like it. But that's just the beginning of the DuPont story, because E.I. DuPont was the fellow who had studied under Lavoisier, and he was the reason why the DuPonts got involved in manufacturing gunpowder. But their success spawned the DuPont Corporation. Back then, three of his grandchildren, E.I. DuPont's grandchildren, also grew up and had their own homes. Pierre Samuel DuPont started Longwood Gardens, which is only six miles from Hagley. Winterter is Henry Francis DuPont's home. That's another grandson of E.I. DuPont. And his 175-room mansion is filled with incredible collections of decorative arts. There's also a souterrain collection there. There's a children's garden called Enchanted Woods where the kids can really let loose and have fun. And it's, the whole property consists of a thousand acres. You can take a tram ride through these really beautiful naturalistic gardens. You can also walk through the gardens, picnic in the gardens, um, and they also have a series of changing exhibitions. Then there's a third place, Namor Mansion and Gardens. You may be familiar with the Namor Children's Hospital. This gentleman, A.I. DuPont, a third grandson, was actually the individual who started funding out of his own money the insurance policy for Delaware residents. Two years later, it was taken over by the state of Delaware. But meanwhile, he built this beautiful 70-room-plus mansion in the style of Marie Antoinette's Petit Trianon. And it's filled with an incredible collection of antiques, furniture, tapestries, and lots of memorabilia, as well as surprises, like the first example of a mechanical horse and a full billiard area and a full bowling alley inside the mansion itself. Plus, outside, it's surrounded by the finest example of French formal gardens in North America. So there's plenty to see in the Wilmington area. The other thing that's really neat is you can be anywhere in less than 30 minutes, and in most places 10 or 15 minutes. Longwood Gardens is right across the border, and it's a horticultural extravaganza. It's world-renowned. One of the places that's less well-known is the Mount Cuba Center, which was the former home of Lamont DuPont Copeland, the last DuPont who was the chairman of the board for the DuPont Corporation. And it's now a horticultural study area, 600 acres of land devoted to preservation.
This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're learning about the attractions of Wilmington in the Brandywine Valley with Lynn Lewis of Visit Wilmington. towns that retain their colonial heritage, like historic Newcastle, which has more historic properties than even colonial Williamsburg. But unlike colonial Williamsburg, it's a fully occupied community right on the banks of the Delaware River. And it was Delaware's first seat of government for the state and also its legislature. So there's a lot of history. Just south is historic Odessa, which is another story about a DuPont contribution. But it's the finest example of 19th century architecture in the state, and it's operated by the historic Odessa Foundation. Another thing that's of interest to many people is this moated Civil War fort. It's by Fort Delaware. Now, it's only open in the warmer months, like from the beginning of May through September, and it's accessible from Delaware City on a ferry. Another high point, and I should mention too that they're reenactors inside the fort all day long. So it's really fun. Blacksmith demonstrations, hearth cooking demonstrations, ghost tours. It's and you can picnic there. The other thing that's funny is that the Peat Patch Island, the southern end of Peat Patch Island, was the penitentiary. The northern part is the largest heron rookery on the east coast. And the National Birding Association just made its headquarters in Delaware City. So, Well, that is quite a list of things that would excite any visitor to the uh, Brandywine Valley. I also know, too, that Wilmington itself, downtown Wilmington, is undergoing somewhat of a renaissance, too, and there are lots of interesting new restaurants, uh, culture, and history places to see and partake of. Give us a sense of what's taking place inside of the largest city there in the state. One of the things that's really exciting is the boom on Market Street. You've had the Queen Theater open in what was a deserted, abandoned theater on Market Street in the 400 block. And it's been completely refurbished. Now, this was a theater that stood up empty for 50 years. It didn't have walls on the side, but instead of demolishing the building, a decision was made to refurbish it. So it's been restored to its elegant state 50 years ago. It now houses live musical performances, and those musical performances really crisscross the whole specter of performances. Four blocks away is the Grand Opera House, which houses a lot of different types of artists. You have country artists, you have jazz artists, uh, you have the ballet, you have the symphony, and then you also have the opera itself. Great choices for people to do. Down two blocks from the Grand is the Hotel DuPont. The theater inside the Hotel DuPont hosts traveling Broadway shows, and it is now being managed by the Grand Opera House. It's changed its name to the Theater on Rodney Square. Because of the close proximity to the Grand, they're able to cross-reference and host different performances there. Not only do they have the plays, but they have musical concerts and events there. You have the Delaware Children's Museum, which just opened in the Wilmington area. You have great restaurants, and several of our chefs have been nominated for a James Beard Award, which is no small achievement. The hotel 
Hotel Dupont is famous for the green room, and the hotel itself is palatial. It was designed by um, Italian artisans who were brought in for a period of a year to do the sculpting and the woodworking. Um, it's really getting to be a fun place where you can spend time. Plus, one of the things that is really of interest to everybody is the festivals. There are over a hundred festivals every year in Wilmington. And for instance, the August Quarterly is the oldest African-American festival in the country. And it's held the last weekend in August every year. It was initiated by Peter Spencer, and it's a tradition in the area. But you also have the Clifford Brown Jazz Festival. That's right down in Rodney Square, right next door to the Hotel DuPont in downtown Wilmington. And um, it brings some of the greatest names in jazz to the stage. That festival is free. It's open to the public, and it's held rain and shine. And many of the local hotels will give you package deals, you know, so that you can have lower rates to go on. All right. But you have a great Greek festival and a great Italian festival and tons of others. For more about the attractions in the greater Wilmington area, go to visit WilmingtonDE.com. Dear, the thing that surprised me most about visiting Wilmington and the Brandywine Valley when we did was just how European it felt uh, in, in terms of just the things that we were able to see and, and visit. And there's a really dynamic art scene in Wilmington that uh, really came as a surprise to me and I'm sure to you as well. Yeah, indeed. And what surprised me a lot, uh, not necessarily the most, but a lot, was the Shakespeare Festival Theater. I loved the grounds that the theater was built on. I loved the outdoor atmosphere, and the artistic direction was phenomenal. Just the creativity that the staff used to create stories, uh, Shakespearean stories, and keep authentic to the writings just by using simple props. And the mansions we saw in the amazing European mastercraft that we saw, you know, art by many of the masters and the rich Americana uh, art that we also saw with the uh, Wyeth family in the Wyeth studio, uh, I was very surprised. You know, Delaware is such a small state. We think about Joe Biden. We, you know, we pass through it all the time on the train when we go from Washington, D.C. to New York. And for me, I've never really given Delaware that much of a second thought. Uh, but that tiny little state has so many riches that are worth exploring. And I want to see more. It really is a treasure trove, and things are very close. Within seven, eight miles from downtown Wilmington, you can be in Pennsylvania and experience Longwood Gardens, which is a world-class garden. Just the beautiful lily ponds that they had there in the greenhouses as well. Just truly remarkable and breathtaking to see all of these places, all of which were built by various members of the DuPont family and uh, Nemours, which... If you've never been there and it's a place you must see, is truly a throwback to a French chateau. Uh, the grounds are immaculate. It rivals anything that one would see in Europe. Yes, indeed. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, DuPont family, and that was uh, a huge surprise for me. I, one, didn't realize that they made their roots uh, in Delaware, and I, two, I didn't realize how much the DuPont family shaped not only uh, the history of the region, but uh, America's history in building the fortune on black powder and kind of moving us into the industrial age. Those are really wonderful surprises that we got to explore in the small state of Delaware. 
And one of those other surprises was that uh, trip to Newcastle, Delaware, which is a very English feel uh, small town where we uh, had a wonderful meal at, at one of the oldest restaurants that I can think we've ever eaten at, Jessup's Tavern. And I will never forget that crab pot pie that I enjoyed there, which was phenomenal. Beautiful. That that was very beautiful food. Honestly, if somebody wants a taste of Europe uh, and they don't have a passport, I'd say just go to Delaware and experience uh, Europe vicariously through through the state. Indeed, Delaware, Wilmington, the Brandywine Valley. It will surprise you. It's just rich with uh, arts, uh, the Brandywine River Museum, the Delaware Museum of Art, two of the finest uh, art museums you'd find anywhere in the country, and it's so close to so many people here on the East Coast. You know, they say that all good things come in small packages, and certainly there's a lot of treasure troves in Delaware, the small state of Delaware. As we close, we'd like to leave you with a quote from Maya Angelou. Perhaps travel cannot prevent bigotry, but by demonstrating that all peoples cry, laugh, eat, worry, and die, it can introduce the idea that if we try and understand each other, we may even become friends. Thank you for joining us. We're Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next adventure with you on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast. <laughs>